So before we start, I just want to say one thing, and that is that the challenge always with these books is not just to read them and have it go like in one ear and out the other, but to actually have it, uh, you know, touch our practice and inform our practice. And so as we write, as we discuss, you know, it's always nice to hear how this affects you as opposed to, you know, what is she saying? How it touches you. Anything else anyone want to say before we start? Okay, I'm going to share the screen. For Ordinary Wonder. Okay. And so let's read in alphabetical order. If you go to the participant list or what we just did, you can figure out who you come after. I'm going to read the, the uh, cover of the book, though. Ordinary Wonders and Life and Practice, Charlotte Joko Beck, author of Everyday Zen, edited by Brenda Beck Hess, who I believe was her daughter. And there she is saying hi to us. Is that big enough type or do you want it bigger? It's fine. Okay. So I think Allison, you're first. Yep. Forward by Jan Chosen Base. Charlotte. And by the Chosen way, uh, Jan Chosen Base is is at a um, temple in Portland, outside of Portland, and Peg was there for six months. Wow. Uh, yeah, I have okay. some books. I really, I, I uh, like her, the way she writes. Anyway, um, Charlotte Jokobeck was a unique person. Somehow this middle-aged secretary became a daring innovator, a person who was always on the front lines when it came to trying new ways to be physically and mentally healthy. I was among the group of younger students at the Zen Center of Los Angeles who followed her lead. And if it's a short paragraph, why don't you go ahead and read two? All right. She took the EST training with Werner Erhard, so dozens of people at the Zen Center took the EST training. She bought a small trampoline and you could look up at the second story window of her apartment at night and see her head appearing and disappearing as she bounced. Others began bouncing to improve lymph flow. She began race walking with weights on, so many people took to striding the streets. Much later in life, because she didn't wanna be a burden on the center as she aged, she took up Pilates a professional, with a professional machine and a personal trainer at a time when no one had heard of Pilates. She was 80. When I saw her during this time, I was amazed that she seemed to have reversed aging, walking with more grace and talking with more clarity than she had before. She taught into her 90s. I <clears throat> Excuse me. I met her when she was an administrator in the chemistry department at the University of California, San Diego. I think she actually ran that department of quirky professors from her desk. She related that when her boss was out of the office, people would line up to talk with her. She later said, I learned a lot about how to do therapy in those years. She was a single mother of four, divorced from an abusive, mentally ill professor who came close to killing her. Only the chance appearance of a neighbor saved her life. These experiences made her blessedly impervious to her students whining about their life problems and made her very clear about what really mattered. Joko became interested in Zen while attending a debate between a Zen master and a Christian minister. She was so impressed by the complete aplomb, aplomb and palpable presence of the Zen teacher, Mazumi Roshi, Mazumi Sensei at the time, that she began studying with him. He was then, she was then in her late forties. A close personal friend had developed cancer. This woman had eight children and meditated in the little room with her washer and dryer, the only place she could get any quiet. 
Joko was inspired by her friend's devotion to practice, especially her ongoing commitment to caring for those around her, even during her last days. Joko felt that her friend's meditation practice was manifested in her refusal to take narcotics so her mind would remain clear, even in her very peaceful death. She sat with her friend as she made the transition from this life becoming pure radiance. Joko was deeply moved by this experience, walking along the beach for hours afterwards, afterward aware that she had lost all fear of death. Glenn, you're Is it me? It's she joined, Glenn, wouldn't it? She joined a meditation group in San Diego. Over the years, as the group evolved, others in her life began to attend as well, including several scientists and graduate students from the university. She was a determined student and began doing annual session, a rigorous sitting meditation retreat, with uh, Yasutani Roshi and Soen Roshi. Her daughters went to these intensives and retreats with her to spend time, albeit in silence, with their mother. Mizumi Roshi opened his own center. She began driving two hours north each Saturday to the Zen Center of Los Angeles for Dokusan, private interview with him, and then driving back two hours uh, back home. Eventually, she retired and moved to the Zen Center to practice full-time. One by one, we followed her north and created a lively Zen community, <coughs> a strange hybrid of a hippie commune and a Zen monastery filled <coughs> with young people hell-bent on enlightenment. Once again, people lined up in the hallway outside her apartment, waiting to talk with her. <coughs> she said that although she was an orthodox in her approach to practice, Mizumi Roshi made her a teacher because he saw how students were naturally attracted to her. Joko's relentless focus on practice was infectious, and many people who practiced with her in San Diego and Los Angeles eventually became Zen teachers. <coughs> with centers of their own. Yoko became ordained and soon received Dharma mission, becoming a much beloved teacher. After six years of living and training in the Zen Center, issues of this misconduct of Mezumi grossly caused Yoko to break her ties with him. She moved back to San Diego, where she founded the Ordinary Mike Zen School. Her way of teaching was direct, in, insightful, deceptive, receptively simple, and matter-of-fact, sometimes right. You might win when she pointed something out, but you knew she hit the bull's eye. Some cherished core belief that was causing you suffering. So this core belief thing is really big in this book, and it's a whole section in the middle. Um, Mady, did you want to read? Yeah, I can try. Okay. Yes. okay. Uh, Joko was the first person I heard giving practical instructions in what we now call mindfulness. Currently, all the rage, she told us when you wash the dishes, just wash the dishes. Feel the warmth of the water, the slipperiness of the soap, the plate in your hand. You could turn Zen rituals into everyday practices. In his book, the, she describes adopt, adopting the Zen practice of kin, kinhin parentheses, slow walking between long periods of seated meditation, unquote, by telling an exhausted, by telling an exhausted doctor to walk mindfully down a hallway each day and his discovery of the freshness this brought to her body and mind. Okay, great. So um, something I've been wondering about is this, is like, what is awakening? And whether 
just washing the dishes really means this that she's talking about. Like, do you need to even be feeling the warmth of the water or the slipperiness of the soap or can you just be in the flow of washing the dishes? And, and so that's, I don't know the answer to that, but if anyone does, I'd be grateful. Okay, we can go on. So the other Nancy. In a session with Yasatani Roshi, Joko had a first opening into what she called real life. She described it as horrible. A friend remembers that afterward when they took walks to talk about Zen, Joko would often stare intensely, point her finger and say, this is not real. In another session, she had an opening into the emptiness of all things. It made her furious. She went to Dokasan, yelled that everything was empty and threw a small lamp at the Roshi. She related like a good Zen teacher, he ducked and said, get used to it and rang his handbell to dismiss me. So that's traditional. In fact, Peg had a bell too, but I never think she, she rang it to get rid of people, but um, the more to call people in, but, but this idea that in Rinzai that you come in to see the teacher and you tell them what the koan means, and then they ring the bell and you barely get a chance to get a word out of your mouth before they ring the bell, so. Okay, who's next? I am, I think. Although Joko is often characterized as a psychologically oriented Zen teacher, she felt that therapy did not offer ultimate relief from suffering. Quote, therapy gives relief, sitting gives freedom, close quote, she would say. I'm not going to do the quotes. If you practice long and hard enough and uncover your core belief, you won't need therapy. Instead of being self-centered, you will become life-centered. However, she remarked that if people were not ready to practice deeply, she would offer them a simple, practical, therapeutic approach to their issues. One student shared that she had started law school and, with a husband and baby at home, had been overcome by inner doubt and criticism. Convinced that she'd made a terrible mistake, Joko listened to her long discourse and then asked, Did you get any grades yet? No. Why don't you wait until you get your grades to worry? Her tangle of thoughts and overwhelming anxiety were instantly dispelled. Joko, Joko did not offer bliss, observing dryly that Sashin is controlled suffering and that the only thing worse than doing Sashin is not doing Sashin. She emphasized the slow, steady change that is possible with long years of practice. She cautioned that you would not become completely unstuck or turn into a saint, adding that you know there's a tremendous difference between being all the way stuck and being unstuck 50%. Even 50% unstuck is 50% free. Joko was insatiably curious, and because of her background in science, she was always interested in new approaches that might help her students. One student remembered that Joko had a bottomless bag of tricks and would pull something out and use it on us, and she would just as easily discard it. Once, she gave essentially the same Dharma <laughs> talk on 10 Saturdays in a row. Some people noticed, some didn't. She, <laughs> she had bread and water served unexpectedly for formal Zen meals, and enjoyed the reactions that came her way later. A regular part of Sashin was eye gazing, sitting for half an hour, looking into the eyes of a different person each day, noticing what was happening now, bodily discomfort, averted gaze, the mind wandering off, emotions arising. If students presented with a litany of complaints, she would ask, what's your sentence? They had to pare down their mental entanglements to one or two sentences 
to help them see through the story they were telling themselves over and over. In this book, you will find one of her favorite quotes, rest on that icy couch. She explained this practice as resting bodily in the physical sensations, thoughts, and emotions. If you return to that icy couch hour after hour, day after day, it becomes a gateway to freedom and contentment with whatever life brings forward. Is it Nancy? Yeah, that's me. I think oh, I'm Okay. All right, you ready? Yeah. Joko had high standards for herself. She was an excellent pianist, and we all enjoyed the music that poured out of her window during breaks. Kim. Oh, as she aged, she gave up playing because her fingers would no longer play as she wished. She was accessible to her students in an interesting way. She had telephone hours. She had telephone hours, eight hours a week. If you called in when someone else was on the line with her, you just kept calling, hoping to connect in the brief interval between the last student hanging up and the next one dialing in. People called in from all over the world. And this was still when you paid for long distance calls by the minute. That's interesting that she did that because, you know, now we are kind of uh, connected electronically, aren't we? And, and then in um, Buddha's time, someone was transmitted by horseback. So it's not new that this hybrid stuff goes on. Although Joko eventually shed many Zen traditions, exchanging her black Zen robes for a simple blouse and long skirt, she was completely <coughs> faithful to the heart of Zen practice, the long hours of silent sitting. She felt that five days of sitting still silent and experiencing everything that was happening in body and mind internally and externally would gradually open a person's awareness of their core belief. This in turn would begin to untangle the tangle of thoughts and emotions that lay at the heart of the suffering of the person's <coughs> false self-centered life, a life that she called the consolation prize. She was clear that this process was not easy, was often painful, but led ultimately to complete transformation. It was one of her students, um, or uh, Alan Capro, who wrote uh, the chant we have, Caught in the Self-Centered Dream. So here you see the false self-centered life. So who's next? Is it Maybe Nancy? you can stop. Pardon me? Sorry, I jumped my head before. Oh, maybe, maybe. You did not want to read. Right, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Hey, lady, do you want the type bigger? Uh, it's okay. I can move my head. That's okay. Okay. I encourage readers to listen to Joko's talks on YouTube. Watch and listen for a few minutes and or more, as so that as you read and. Uh, reread her words in his in this book. You can hear the warmth and the straightforward clarity of her voice. And for heaven's sakes, practice what she recommends. She what she spent forty years doing and teaching, uh, sitting silent and still. Uh, for long periods of time, experiencing everything that is happening in what you call your body, your thoughts, and your emotions. If you persist, you will find, as Joko did, an ease and simple happiness in all that life, that all that life presents you. Introduction by Brenda Beckers. My mother always wanted to write a third book, but just didn't have the energy to do so in her later years. After her death, I could often look at the boxes of texts of her talks. 
get overwhelmed considering where to stop and leave the task. After pre-evacuation orders were given for the Dawson fire in Prescott in 2013, one of the death, deadliest fire, wildfires in American history, I knew that at the very least I had to stop digitizing those steps to ensure they safety, their safety with the intent of also hoping to fulfill her desire to do another book. One day, not long after the fire, I picked a tab semi-randomly from the collection. I placed it into the Nakamichi tape deck purchased for this purpose and listened to the first words of the talk. If I'm ever going to do another book, jackpot. The process of listening to and digitizing these tapes began. On that first tape, which recorded a talk she had given in 1997, she spoke about what she called the core belief. Curious about how she developed this critical aspect of her teaching, I felt <coughs> compelled to backtrack about a year and a half from that talk. In the early part of 1996, she was supposed to come to Prescott to visit, but came down with the flu for the first time in her life. She was pretty sick and apparently had lots of time for practice and reflection. When she started teaching again, she shared that she was in the process of clarifying another level of practice revolving around the core belief. In a talk midway through 1996, she outlined the birth of a child before birth, the world satisfies all that is needed in the womb. After birth, however, the infant's needs can never be totally met by others. Unable to conceive that there, would, that there could be an issue with the parents on whom the infant is totally dependent, a seed is planted. The problem must be with the young baby. The baby feels there must be something wrong with itself, and this is the foundation of the core belief. The infant then develops a strategy to get what it wants. The baby will cry, please, or be defiant, among other options, in its efforts to get its needs satisfied. There are many strategies, but all are aimed toward the same goal, feeling safe and loved in the world. Since the infant feels its very survival is at stake, it earnestly adopts these strategies, finding a few key ones that seem to work. For most oh, of and I'm curious. I'm curious. Do you guys agree with this? That I mean, I don't know that babies have that level of self-reflectiveness. What do you think, Mady? You're the psychiatrist. Uh, I missed. I have to read, 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 read this. I this sentence here: the baby feels that there must be something wrong with itself. And this is the foundation of the core belief. Oops. I, I, do, I do believe that. I think there is a point to making sense of the bodily feelings. I, I, that, that is my understanding of importance of, of feelings, even at the, that young age with the limited you know, structure of the brain and the belief. I think that direction that the body is giving to the child, I think I, I value that very much so. I think if she is coming to that point, I, I've, I am I, I'm, I'm, it becoming more clear to me what she's talking about as far as core belief of each person. I think there is a, another way of explaining it as, uh, you know, emotional, feeling or bodily feeling and because i have you know read you know other books and directions as, as to you know find your guidance in life and that is one of those important things that is pointed to maybe i have another question because i actually had a question about the previous sentence, not or okay. the previous few sentences, and that sentence is unable to conceive that there could be an issue with the parents on whom the infant is totally dependent. And I find that 
um, challenging to accept because infants develop ambivalent attachment because they know a parent is unsafe or avoidant attachment because they know their primary caregiver is unsafe. They, infants are very dependent. It is important that relationship is immensely important, you know, that di diet between the mom, mother, or care caregiver, and then the child. And it goes to the core of, you know, personality and initial belief. If that core is, is not secure, uh, not good, not good. So my, my question is this, it's the way this paragraph is framed. So is it that the child realizes the parents unsafe and therefore develops a personality style and attachment style? Or does the, is the child mature enough to even consider that there's nothing wrong with the parent and there must be something wrong with him or are, her? Are we, we talking about age again? You know, the, the, less, the more, you know, older it's, if infant or child is, there is more cognition and more understanding and, you know, more reality, <laughs> reality to the feelings. I'm talking about the, uh, that level, you know, it can change. And that is what develops, what develops in child, you know, between the feelings of the child and then the environmental influence, which is something establishes and becomes more reality-based. I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe that's what she's talking about. <laughs> I just the find it hard to, to hold this sentence as, these sentences as presented, that's all. I see. It yeah. could be, it's a relative thing. You know, it doesn't have to be totally, you know, the truth, the whole reality. It can be part of the reality. That's the way I look at it. You know, Nelda, I... You know, Nelda, I was able to discard the former sentence and still keep this idea of a core belief of something being inherently amiss or lacking that does form in, in the infant's mind from, from, from the need for bodily satisfaction, um, you know, that comes from being just health, you know, animal warmth and nourishment, but also the introduction of, of duality that happens right about that time. Suddenly, there is a separation from, from the mother unit. And then here comes language, you know, where, where parents are in our face teaching us that these objects are, they have identifiers and names and all these things produce, they produce self, they produce duality, they produce a sense of separation. And so this core belief, which is everywhere, it's an original sin. It's in your own head all the time, running you down. It's in our politics. It's pervasive. Thank you for separating the words of the sentences from the overarching reality. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That was very good. Thank and you. For, for most of us, it's so much a part of us that, that no matter what evidence is given to us about the world, we don't change, right? We, we keep, this is really obvious today in our world that it's very hard to change people. Uh, who's reading now for most of us? Is it Stephanie? Yeah, I think it's Stephanie. She's still with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm sorry, I got caught up in listening and kind of thinking about what you guys were saying and whether or not I agreed with it. So you okay. want to say something? So, no, no. Oh, okay. I'm happy just to listen. Okay. Okay. For most of us, these strategies continue and reinforce themselves somehow in written reinforce themselves throughout and into what Joko called the basic strategy even though for the most part, as we grow up, they no longer work. The core belief is always a negative belief we have about ourselves, an opinion so painful 
that we will do almost anything to avoid feeling our abject sense of unlovability and worthlessness. The basic strategies are our ardent but diluted responses, fixed reactions in a fluid world. Although she saw the core belief as a natural, nearly inevitable formation in a young child's development, Joko focused her attention on the places where practice can help us intervene. The way that as adults, we perpetuate our core beliefs through our moment to moment decisions about how we relate to our lives. She spoke repeatedly about how the thinking mind is useful in elucidating the core belief. But this clarification, while very important, is only the first step. While somewhat useful, stopping here would leave a practice that exists in the realm of psychology. The crux of practice with the core belief is to continue on from mere psychological understanding and do the work none of us want to do. We must rest and sit in the experiential pain that is the very difficult heart of our practice. This is resting in the present moment. This is Zen practice. The paradox is that when one truly rests in this pain, the experience disappears and there is no pain. There is no one to experience the pain. This is not something we can try to do. The paradox of practice is that as we use tremendous effort to stay with this pain the best we can, it slowly erodes and moments can arise of no, of no effort, of just pain, of just pain, just joy. These are the moments one might call enlightened. But my mother rarely talked about enlightenment because that is already who we are. We just don't see it because of the false construct we have carefully crafted to try and promote, protect this vessel. For her, the constant study and investigation she did was for the purpose of helping her students see the problem and learn to practice with it. One of her central teachings was for people to label their thoughts. We found we have all had, <coughs> we all have our own repeating patterns of thought and the patient often redundant work of becoming aware of these patterns through labeling. Can, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking of the patient as a person and the patient often redundant work of becoming aware of these patterns through labeling can help us see our core belief and the basic strategy that derives from it. Once we clarify this, then we slowly develop the skill to see when these patterns arise. She <coughs> points out that whenever we are upset, we have a good clue that our patterns are in action. I think it's one of uh, Mady. Okay, a, a second major element of her teaching is that the uh, continued work of studying and unrevealing, unraveling our core belief, unraveling our core belief occurs in large part through resting in our often tightly held body sensations in order to unmask the rage and pain within. She emphasizes that we have to do this body experiencing sensations thousands and thousands of times. The thoughts become like bubbles, neither clung to nor amplified with the subsequent train of other thoughts. The body sensations become just that, sensations that are experienced and gradually weaken. The moments of therapy of the joy, the moments of the joy, regardless of what is going on, appear unmasked. Yoko also clarifies in her talks about our core belief, our strategies, our thoughts, and our body sensations 
on that we think are so concrete and nothing more than the experience of the present moment. She teaches that our internal agony is nothing other than enlightenment itself. How could the experience of the present moment, no matter what that experience is, be other than enlightenment? The tragedy is that we don't see this, thus we avoid the experience of this moment and we suffer. Instead of being that which is now arising, we cover it with our strategies. Instead of manifesting the compassion we are, we manifest a life that revolves around trying to make ourselves feel comfortable and safe or comfortably numb. <laughs> Joko clarified in multiple tasks about how to do extraordinary, simple, and exceedingly difficult work. It's me. We hunger for the peace of resting in this moment, whatever it is, but it is the hardest thing to actually do. It takes work. What we want to feel, what we want is to feel comfortable. The paradox is that we have to be the agony of our core belief over and over until it just wears out. And what remains is the joy and peace of the present mo moment, whatever it is. The life that manifests is one of compassion, appropriateness, and usefulness. My mother's practice was impressively relentless, as was her commitment as a teacher. She endlessly searched for ways to help clarify what the task of practice actually is. She read widely from many different sources in this search, taking from Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and many non-religious, philosophical, psychological, and New Age sources. She returned to two books in particular over and over again in her life. The first one was The Supreme Doctrine by the French psychotherapist Hubert Benoit. The second one was I Am That by the Indian Shaivism teacher Sri Nishagaradatta Maharaj. I share this in case you are interested in reading them yourself. I recall as a child her scouring bookstores for books that made sense to her, that would support her in her own search for truth. In later years, she looked for books that furthered her ability to help her students to understand what is entailed in practice, and by understanding it, be more able to do the work involved in practice. When my mother was working on her first two books, she would fuss over each sentence, trying to make sure it clearly communicated her intent. At the same time, she would laugh and tell me that in Zen, there is only ever one talk to give. I never studied formally with my mother, but consider her to have been and to continue to be my teacher. What a gift it is to listen to her tapes, transcribe them, and help in the editing process. She remains alive, and I gratefully continue to learn from her words. In the last year of her life, when her ability to teach with the finesse of her prior years was waning, another kind of explicitly clear teaching appeared. At first, I thought it was because her ability to expound on the teachings was gone. Then I realized that her teachings were exquisitely distilled into one sentence, you're fine. She would gently pat me on the arm and say, you're fine. That's funny, my, my sister was a psychoanalyst and one time she told me, you don't have any problems. <laughs> And I, that was so interesting. I've worked a lot with that. You know, like, what would, what would it be like if, if, if you could really accept that? You don't have any problems. Well, even, a car, <laughs> e even a car that won't start. In a sense, it doesn't have any problems. It just, you know, as a car that won't start. Okay. Uh, okay. Who's next? Glenn. I'm next. Uh, I would like to thank Rachel Newman for editing. She took years worth of talks and made them cohesive and even more useful. I would like to thank Matt Zeppelin at uh, Shambhala for what I like to call his smoothing of the manuscript. 
I'm forever grateful to my mom. Uh, do you want me to just finish it? I'm forever grateful yes, to my mom. Sure. Her teachings saved my life. Her example of intelligent and diligent lifelong practice was the model for many of our own lives, Zen practice. She was willing to do that work. I hope you find her words useful in supporting uh, you in returning to your life, the peace and joy that it is. Okay, should we write now for uh, 10 minutes? Yeah. Yes. And then uh, till 10 wow. after, and then uh, we'll have 20 minutes to whatever, share if you want to do that. So Glenn, you could mute everyone. And Kim, will you stop screen sharing? Yes. Thanks for asking. I think we're at 10. <clears throat> but to be honest, I'm not sure. Okay, I think that's 10 minutes. We are, it's 10 minutes. I could see Allison getting like, let's go, let's roll. <laughs> that means you have to talk first, right? Uh, Who'd like to I, share? I did not realize talking was mandatory. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, certainly not. Well, I'll talk. Okay. Um, the first thing I thought is, I don't think anything about this. I'm too tired. <laughs> and, then, and then stuff started coming up. And one thing I realized, well, what I realized is uh, how much um, Joko's teaching pervade Peg's teaching, not overtly, but subtly. I've never heard uh, Peg say anything like this that we just read. Um, but, uh, I, but I, but one of the most valuable, valuable things I've picked up, uh, uh, am I still on something? Yeah. What just okay. happened here? Um, uh, one of the most valuable things that I've picked up, uh, at Appamata is it's perfectly fine to be exactly who I am. There's nothing innately wrong with me. <laughs> You know, uh, someone someone press screen sharing. Maybe did was that uh, you? Yeah, I I am lost. Sorry, it's okay. We'll just go so if you could stop the screen sharing. Okay. Here I can do it. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> go on, Ellen. Um, so anyway, I mean, I think that's one of the most valuable things I've gotten from Appamata. And uh, I would say that it comes first through learning forms, the way uh, uh, not only Peg, but her attitude pervades all of Appamata. Uh, just a great tolerance and patience, you know, and uh, and then I and for me, uh, extensive meta practice. Um, and so, so that's just what struck me, even though nobody, Peg, Peg has never said those words. Uh, I, I think that, uh, she learned from her teacher and passes on to us, uh, what she got from her teacher, whether she does it with overt words or just her actions and the way everything is set up. How about the, the, uh, Peg's um, interest and also Joko Beck's about wanting to uh, <clears throat> learn about so many things. No, oh, yeah, that's cer certainly. You know, that's that. not common of it of someone in any field. Usually, yeah. they they kind of stick to their field. Yeah, Peg's definitely like that. Always <coughs> reading all kinds of things for the benefit of her, and also for the benefit of her students. Like this might help somebody, you know, if I knew this, something about this. It's very impressive to me. Uh, someone else? Mady, did you raise your hand? Uh, yes, uh, I am very impressed with the with her book and her journey and her 
persistence and uh, overall what she has discovered and she has come to the wisdom and insight is it, it's very much in line with the current psychological you know thinking and it is it's a very very much true so you know i'm not an expert in infant psych psychiatry you know but this is totally important the idea of core belief and uh, her struggle through life uh, this is very interesting very meaningful she has a very good insight into her own life and in general and her guidance has been i i think this is very valuable I mean, I, I'm just amazed. I have to, I have to spend more time maybe with the book. You know, all of these, it takes time to think for any any type of a important issue. You have to reread and just contemplate or <laughs> practice to come to that, you know, gut feeling and understanding. And she had it. She has it. She has had it. Um, who else? If someone doesn't step forward, I'm going to. Okay, I'm going to. So I did a drawing of uh, someone <coughs> washing, washing dishes. And then I wrote, I... I've been puzzled about what it means to be awake. Is there something between being fast asleep and being able to label what we are thinking? Can you be awake washing dishes and not be hung up on recognizing that the plate is smooth or that the water is warm and soapy? Can you just wash the dishes? So that's what I'm going to. Actually, um, I think our dishes need to be washed. So that when we're done. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to label it. I'm not going to, but I'm not going to be dreaming about, you know, like anything else, but just wash the dishes. I, I think it's possible. Well, we, the, we want to report after you. <laughs> it, it is a real, it, it, it is a way of practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Teach, teach not Han did the same. What, know, wash the dishes? Yes, teach yes. not Han, yes. Was, did he label it or did he just wash the no, dishes? No, 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 no. In, 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 in one of her books, you know, The Miracle of Mindfulness, Teach Not Han. Yes. A little small book, but this is her way of every day, you know, doing with mindfulness, doing everything with mindfulness. Yeah, I'm really questioning. You know, like what what are you conscious of when you're doing that? Or are you conscious of anything but drawing washing the dishes? And are you gonna try different techniques? Are you going to observe yourself washing the dishes? No, that would be just I don't gonna, wanna I don't wanna, don't wanna do wanna, that. You don't wanna do that. You just I wanna, just wanna wash, wash the darn dishes, but I don't wanna be zoning out either. Right. In, uh, in how Thich Nhat Hanh talks about dishes in uh, another book in How to Eat, one of the little tiny books, and he says to uh, wash the dishes as though you were uh, washing a baby. Yeah. Yeah, you're certainly mindful when you wash a slippery little Absolutely. baby. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it better be. <laughs> And also, I remember he mentioned that uh, what he, he asked another person is like, you want to wash the dishes just to wash the dishes or you want to wash the dishes in order to finish washing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I must wash the dishes. Oh, that's a good distinction. Because <laughs> often we, uh, we do that. We, we just do it to finish. Mm -hmm. but, but but he's he's putting another value to it and something more to doing that action which is important by itself by being mindful and being self-conscious 
And I think that's a very important lesson that he, he has learned to use all of these moments for his own good or whoever else, I don't know. I mean, it's just, a, it's, I think this is a way okay. of developing okay. yourself. You're okay. You're all right. I'm here. It's okay. Someone else? It will be nice next week to hear from the horse's mouth. <laughs> what are we, who's the horse? Joko Beck. Oh, are we going to, what do you mean? Oh, because we'll read her chapter. Yeah. We, yeah, we didn't read any of Joko Beck. Right. Just about oh. her. So. It's kind of interesting to hear her daughter's point of view. Yeah, yeah. And I suspect her daughter, since Joko Beck lived so long, that her <clears throat> daughter must have been, you know, a little older too, when even when Joko passed away. Imagine so. Yeah. And the fact that she never uh, was, it seemed like even after Joko passed away, she started to realize who her mom was mm. or what she had to give. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else? Nelda, you've been quiet. I'm listening. It was great to be reunited with Ellen and Donna and Stephanie. My little yeah. practice good lunch. Good to be this is really lovely. Back. And good to see the faces that weren't here before when I was coming to. Well, what's that image, Stephanie, that you're showing, that's your screenshot? Oh, that's when I did the walk, uh, um, the Santiago, uh, Community Santiago. I did a 100-mile Camino, and that's an arrow. That's when, how you know you're on the right path. And when did you do that? Arrows. How long um, ago? 2019. I see. I, yeah, I remember yeah. when you did that. Yeah, when I was training. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, should we call it a night? Yeah. That's good. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, you everyone. Thank you. Okay, everybody. <clears throat> Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you, Kim. Wash your dishes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>